Times are getting hard, boy. Money's getting scarce. Times don't get no better, boy. Gonna leave this place. Take my true love by her Welcome, everybody, to episode six of Real Bad, where just like the television series, they knew the final season was too big to be covered in just one chunk. So here we are with episode two, covering the back half of season five, the series finale of Breaking Bad, more or less a season six in some ways. I'm Kevin Ford. With me, as always, is Jerome Cusan and Jerome Our journey in some respects has come to an end, at least one of the ends we are going to be experiencing. You have now seen all of the television series Breaking Bad. I have, and I feel like I've joined a a very secret and special club that has watched and basked in the glory of the show. So I am very, very pleased to, to finally be done. And I am excited that I was... I'm excited just at how well... The show ultimately built, and I think what makes Breaking Bad so unique is that so many other shows, if you look at their best seasons, the first seasons generally come in like the second, third, or fourth season. I can think of a ton of prestige shows where their their best season is their third season. I think The Wire, Mad Men, their best seasons are their third seasons, and their fifth seasons are kind of the weakest, but in this case... I think Breaking Bad hit its crescendo in season five. It's peaked in season five, and that's not something that you see in a lot of peak TV. I think if you if, if I were to evaluate the first four seasons, I would say that it is very, very good, and it certainly deserves to be talked about in a group with the best television shows of all time. What I think separates Breaking Bad from those from a lot of other shows is the fact that the final season is so good and i'm not just including this back half but the first half of season five was very good too and i think that this show peaked just about at the right time i think i think peak breaking bad is one of the episodes that takes place in this season. It is not the series finale, but I think I think you know what episode I'm talking about. But when you can have your peak episode take place in the final season, then I think you've done something right. And it's almost one of those like episodes that's universally recognized as the best Breaking Bad episode. There are some really great ones, but as far as what people say is the best, it's almost this universal pick. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. So let's go in order. We ha- we have to go episode by episode like we did last time. Going character by character seems foolish. Everyone's kind of all up in each other's business at this point anyways. But where we left off with episode eight was Hank finally figured out that Walt is Heisenberg. Or at least he has this very strong hunch, thanks to Walt, carelessly leaving his book that was gifted to him by Gail Bedeker in his bathroom. But we don't start with that just yet. We actually start with a flashback. We're in the same place and time as we were in the flashback in the first episode of the season. Walt in his 52nd birthday, now with hair and a beard. He's got a a huge ass gun in his trunk and a bunch of money, but he's going back to his house. And at this point, the White House is totally abandoned. Huge fence around it. Tons of graffiti on that. The pools drain. There's skateboarders there. But Walt goes back, looks inside the house, and he retrieves the ricin that he hid behind one of the wall outlets. What I found most interesting about this 
And again, a lot of my notes come from the podcast, the official podcast that they did that uh, Vince Gilligan was on every single episode. And they had tons of writers, editors, actors on this was that there was some talks when they first did this, that the White House would be completely gone and it would just be the pool in its place. But then they realized at some point, Walt needs to get that rice in. Or do they? That's the thing I kind of like about Breaking Bad and why I think it's so good is because they talk about how they had the opportunity to spend three weeks on every episode breaking it. Before they even wrote it, they just talked about the plot. They got the chance to go through every single possible scenario and land on what they think the best course of action, the most logical course of action would be. And I think them having that time is what makes it so good. So this ricin comes up, and I have to imagine they talk about, well, what if he just doesn't get the ricin? What if it's a red herring? Or, and the other thing that I find most interesting is that Vince Gilligan says is when they wrote the ricin into the story, they did not know what they would end up using it for, which is also interesting to me because I feel like how it gets used is so logical. But it is interesting that that Vince Gilligan, I think, is so open that sometimes they write these things in there because they, they know it's going to be interesting, but what the outcome is going to be, they don't exactly know. And uh, the rice one was one of those cases. So Walt gets it here, and uh, he sees one of his neighbors next door, Carol, happens to see him, and he confirms him by giving her a hello, and she very humorously drops her groceries, and that kind of sets off a domino effect we'll see in the last couple episodes. But... Uh, Jerome, how did you think of this starting off the season? Well, you start off the first part of the season with a flash forward. I think it only makes sense that you do the same thing at the start of this half of the season. And I do like that we very quickly get to see Karen again in this episode as well. I think that's a really good callback. And of course, it's a, it comes back to this idea of being a, a little bit darkly funny and I, I just I really appreciate the fact that this that this show that is so dark is still able to incorporate humor at all times. And the ricin was I, I always thought in the back of my mind the ricin was always going to play some sort of role in whatever endgame is is ultimately realized. And yeah, I just think that the way that they set the this flash forward up, I think, was really, really well executed. And the opportunity to spend so much time breaking each episode, I think that makes such a difference because you're really able to figure out what each episode is going to look like. And I think I've complained about the idea of the 10-hour movie or something like that. I think what makes this half of the season a little bit different than previous seasons is that it definitely feels less episodic and it does feel more serialized, but it's hard to be critical of it because, again, we are in the endgame. We're trying to get to a definitive endpoint and... I think it is much more forgivable to have this half of the season be more serialized as opposed to episodic because they're clearly trying to tell the final story. And there are these moments at the beginning of the episode that seemingly are disconnected from everything else, but of course are going to play a role that I think at least differentiate the episodes that you're not right away starting with the, you're, you know, you're not starting this episode with Hank on the toilet. You're starting with a flash forward. And I really like the fact that they are constantly just trying to start these episodes in a different place than where they left off the previous one. 
as do I. And I liked what you said about the humor because something they even mentioned was that they wanted to put as much humor as they could in the show without hurting the integrity of the characters or plot because this is such a heavy show, especially this last season. It's so heavy, there's not that many moments that the characters can have that aren't these just like really dramatic, serious, tense, ugly moments. So any moment that they could find to put in some humor in there to break it up and just not overwhelm people with these negative downtrodden emotions they were going to take. And them saying hi to, to Carol, the next door neighbor, was definitely one of them. But the next thing we do see is we see Hank coming out of the bathroom and you're wondering, what is he going to do? And what, and what I like is that his first image is when he leaves is he sees Walt with his daughter playing. So I don't think he was going to have to be able to storm out and yell him and call him an MFer and do all this in front of everybody. So he just has to leave. But he's like, it's like triggered his PTSD again that he experienced and he crashes his car, which gives him an out then to be able to stay home on some sick leave and have and be able to dis- go through all his files again. Not at work, because you remember in the first half of the season, his boss told him to cut it out with this. So now he's putting all this evidence and stuff together as home, getting files brought to him, trying to work out the case. And in the meantime, we see Walt and and Skyler are at work. Even Walt's thinking of opening a second car wash. Things are going good. Like the business is running just fine. Like we we saw at the end of the last season, like the family's kind of functioning again. And then here comes Lydia. Throwing a monkey wrench and everything when she tells Walt about the poor quality of the meth they're making and wants him to come cook again. He says, I'm totally out. That's it. Uh, And even Skylar shoes her away with a hell no. And uh, Jesse at this point wants to have Saul give his duffel bags of his of the money that Walt left him to Mike's granddaughter, because at this point he's convinced Mike is dead. And the parents of the kid that Todd shot back in the the train heist episode, Walt does not like that. He talks to Jesse, and again, he thinks that Walt killed Mike, but Walt assures him this isn't the case and Mike's still alive. So he's still lying to Jesse at this point. Uh, And Jesse decides to throw his stacks of money into neighbors' yards as a paperboy. He's really just in a a bad headspace at, at, at this time. And where this episode concludes is Walt, his cancer is back. That's a that's a big thing that that comes up here. And from the nausea of the chemo he's going through, he's puking in his toilet and he realizes, uh-oh, my my Walt Whitman book is gone. And just on a hunch, he checks his car and, yep, Hank's tracking his vehicle, which leads to the end with them having a confrontation in the garage. Where Walt's really trying to feel out the situation, Hank punches him in the face and he throws it all out there that you're Heisenberg, you're this, you're that. And Walt really kind of pleased to... The, the human side of him trying to plead for to keep his family together. Even if everything you say is true, my cancer's back and I'm going to die anyways. Um, what I found interesting here is I was, I remember at the time I was surprised that they had this confrontation in the first episode back in the season, but you had actually predicted this was going to come early. So you can give your thoughts on the episode, but I also wonder what made you think that they were going to have Hank and Walt have their confrontation so early in the second half of the season. I mean, there was almost no way around it. And I understand that it wasn't going to be at the beginning of the episode, because from a logical standpoint, this is something that you save for either the end or the the next episode. But I just sort of figured that, I mean, at this point in, in the season, 
this is where you lay out all your cards on the table. There's no reason to postpone something or to delay something from a storytelling perspective because you have a limited amount of episodes left. And um, so I think that, you know, one of the issues that that could come up is, you know, if you delay it too long, then you're going to have trouble getting into the rest of the story. But what I very much appreciated was the fact that they just got into it and they started it right away and they, they were, they were not, (laughs) they put themselves in a great position to then get on with the rest of the season. And that's one of the, you know, I sort of figured that this was, that this was coming because again, this is something that we've been building to for four and a half seasons. And why why delay it at this point like that's that was my logical take on it because you know they're going to be additional confrontations between them you know that jesse is going to somehow become involved as he is and i just think that this is the perfect way to come back especially after your after a year off this is how you reward those people who have been waiting for a year is to put that confrontation in the first episode and to literally have hank punch walt right in the face and Kevin, I know that's something you've been wanting to do to me for years. Yeah, it's not even the most satisfying moment of someone getting their hands on someone else in the season, but I think for some fans, with the way Walt has manipulated and used his family, I think for some people, Hank punching Walt was very satisfying. Uh, but what did you think of uh, Jesse treating his bag of money like a paper boy and just throwing to random people's yards? I mean, clearly Jesse is not in a good place. He is a mentally broken person at this point. And I'm not going to say that I saw this coming, but you can definitely see Jesse throughout this episode. He is not a happy person. And it's funny how they try to kind of even further illuminate just how depressed he is because there is an extended Star Trek conversation that happens and I clearly Vince Gilligan and his writing staff are enormous Star Trek fans. <laughs> I love those scenes. Uh, yeah, just anytime they have those conversations in the background where it's almost secondary to whatever the, the third party that's not involved is feeling is always a joy. This ends up costing Jesse in episode 10 buried. He's lingering on a playground after this and gets caught and we don't see him again till the end. When we realize he's now at the police station. So we'll get to him in a minute. Uh, but now it's of course, Hank versus Waltz trying to both, both of them trying to get to Skylar at the same time. And Hank beats him there. Um, but I, you had mentioned that you were very upset that there wasn't a Scrooge McDuck moment with the stack of money in the in the warehouse last season. And I told you, just just wait, you're going to get your moment, and you get Huel laying down, and then Kubi himself lays down the stack of money. Did this scratch that particular itch for you, Jerome? I know it did for me. This is literally everything that I wanted from this series. If they had rolled the credits after this Scrooge McDuck moment, I would have said that was a satisfying ending and everything that I needed to see. I'm totally kidding. Of course. I mean, it was, it was, it was a great moment and Huel and Kubi. I mean, they're, they just have been great side characters. They are perfect in their roles. I guess they are the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Breaking Bad universe. That's that's very much how it feels because they are just so off to the side, but they play the roles perfectly. And I think I've, I've talked enough about my love of Bill Burr on this show. But, you know, so much of this episode just works. And 
I, I want to talk about the diner scene because one of the things that I asked you is, is there a Tarantino influence on this show? And you have said that nobody has ever mentioned it. And I am so surprised because there are so many moments throughout the entire run of this show, the way that certain shots look to certain actors that get cast that we're going to talk about later. Even the scene in the diner reminded me a lot of Pulp Fiction and the, the diner scene that take pl- that took place there with the way that they played the rising tensions between Skyler and Hank. And in a cer- at a certain point, you feel like these two people are on the same page. But then you come to a point where you realize they're really having two very different conversations. And Skylar sees herself in a very different light than Hank does. Hank is just all about... Hank almost has a very black and white way of seeing things, pun not intended, in that he he sees that Walt is a drug dealer, Walt is therefore a bad person, and Walt needs to go to jail. But what he doesn't understand is just how complicated this entire thing is. He does not understand the weight of this entire situation. And it's something that he ultimately will never understand because as we will talk about in a later episode, you know, Hank ultimately pays for, for his own sins and Hank, again, he doesn't understand it. Skylar has so much more of an understanding and even she doesn't fully understand the weight that is on Waltz and the, the drugs it is, it is represented by the money, but there's so much going on that neither one of these characters know about. And I think this is the, one of the rare times that you see Hank and Skyler have a one-on-one conversation. And I don't know if they did this by design to build up to this specific conversation, but I think it works out really well. And you see them kind of simpatico at the beginning, and then you slowly kind of see them separate and kind of go back into their own cocoons, so to speak, in their own little worlds. And I just thought that it was uh, it was great. Dean Norris just has a tremendous second half of the season between the ending of episode nine and this episode. It, I, did he win an Emmy? Because he certainly deserved at least a nomination. I, I will check. I don't think he did because I wrote down a couple of the Emmy nominations from this year. I think Breaking Bad got a total of six nominations that year and somebody else on it won. So, so they both, so Breaking Bad won best supporting actor and best actor in a drama and neither of those were to Dean Norris. Uh, I think you can guess probably the two that got those awards. So, unfortunately, the competition was stiff for Dean Norris if he was nominated in his own show. But that does not take away from how tremendous he was in the season. I completely agree with you. For sure. And I think just to kind of wrap up my thoughts on this episode, I think what really struck me is the scenes between uh, Marie and Skylar also hit really hard because... I think it's more about the the impact of just that conversation. And I, I think that on every episode up until this point, I've talked about the reasons that I think that Marie has been poorly served by the writing. And I think it's unfortunate that she has because I think some of the weight, for me anyway, some of the weight of those scenes between Skylar and Marie, they don't work as well because I don't think Marie is, a, is as full of a character as she should be. So it's it's just really unfortunate. But I still think that from a dramatic standpoint, they certainly do work. Definitely. And I so one thing about the 
Hank and Skyler thing too is that's the first Skyler hears that Walt's cancer is back is from Hank. And I think there's a part of her brain that shifts to survival mode where if I don't cop to anything and maybe Walt just dies, then I can maybe still get away with some with something. But really, yeah, the, the Marie scene with Skyler, and you answer my own question is, I think this episode, the next episode, the Mexican restaurant, Betsy Brent gets the best stuff she's gotten all series long. And here she's able to show some of her own, just just stand on her own as a character when she slaps Skylar in the face after she realizes she not she knew everything going on with Walt and even knew about everything. Um, like she realizes that she knew about Walt's dealings prior to Hank being shot, and that's what really sets her over the edge. And she tries to take Holly with her, and that leads to Hank interjecting and all this stuff. Just just such great tense, just like genuinely like scary moments to watch as a viewer as just so much emotion is flying between these three characters. Like I just have to imagine these are just like such emotionally exhausting days for everybody on this show. Just everything they had to to pour into these characters and the amount of tears and yelling and everything else. Just I know they all got some high quality sleep in between shooting days. Especially if they're shooting during the summer in Albuquerque. I mean, that's got to be even more brutal because then it's not only emotionally draining, but then it's physically draining because they're out in the heat. And we even get a scene with Walt in the desert burying the money and recording the latitude and longitude. I don't think that there has ever been a moment on any TV series, Kevin Ford, where latitude and longitude has ever been more important. Uh, Up for debate. But either way, uh, it's it's more coordinates than anything, but I guess latitude and longitude does count. But he puts it on a lottery ticket, which becomes very important for the rest of this. Uh, some other things is that he ends up passing out in his shower when he gets home. And this is when uh, Skylar wakes him up on the floor and tells him, you know, hey, I didn't I didn't say anything. And I think our best course of action is to keep quiet. We get this in uh, this shootout scene that we don't see, but. Declan, his underground meth lab, which is not up to Lydia's standards, gets totally taken over by Todd, his uncle, and Kenny. They massacre Declan and his entire team, and this is the first hint we're seeing that Todd uh, has some feelings for Lydia, which only get creepier as the, the rest of the season goes on. And then, of course, the last thing is Hank returning to work officially, and you see him going into question Jesse by himself as the episode ends. So, Kevin Ford, what happens when you don't have the budget to shoot an actual shootout. What do you do, Kevin? You uh, you you shoot elsewhere, and you hear everything that's going on. Yes, this is a this is a shortcut that many a television show has used because there are a lot of shootouts and a lot of expensive moments to come on this series. So you save the effort by hearing it from Lydia's perspective, and I love that the POV is totally with Lydia the whole time, and we also get a hint that. Todd and the rest of his crew are exhibiting some white nationalistic tendencies. I think that is the most generous way of putting it. And any time that you can get Nazis on a TV show to prove that they're really that your characters are evil, I guess you got to take advantage of it, right? I suppose so. The poor stories about some of those actors having to walk through airports with those swastika tattoos on their necks. Not good. Not good at all. Yeah, I would imagine that especially today, because Nazis are still around and you may have seen them on the news lately at your favorite local Capitol building. 
And yeah, I think it's uh, it's Nazis are bad. And throughout this, I I just wanted to uh, to have the gift going of Inglorious Bastards when Brad Pitt talks about killing Nazis because I am I'm pro killing Nazis, Kevin. I know this is controversial. Nazis are bad. I'm clean. Wow, you! I went I went Inglorious Bastards, and you went South Park. Two high quality, equal quality uh, shows and television is what I will say to that. I really do love Inglorious Bastards, though. I think that was my ex-roommate's dad's favorite movie. It is uh, It is a very good movie, and this is transitioning back to Breaking Bad. I think this is a very, very good episode of television. And uh, all I could say is uh, goodbye, Declan. We hardly knew ye. Yeah, and that's and Declan didn't deserve a shootout scene, let's be honest. He he really did not, but it was funny to watch this episode, and then he's just randomly playing a doctor in an episode of Westworld. It's pretty amusing, and this will not be the first time that I talk about Westworld on this podcast either. So, see, episode 11, Confessions, actually begins with our Nazi crew at a diner. They're driving back from Arizona into New Mexico, and this is really just a way of, of Todd showing his... He, he's talking about the train high story with just such... Such affection. He thinks of it so fondly. And he just thinks of Walt so fondly. Like, Walt's not even involved in this anymore, but he's giving Walt this voicemail update. Yeah, it. it this is a great way, I think, to show uh, how Todd views Walt in many ways. It's something we saw when they started to cook together at the end of the first part of this. But you really can see that he, he takes a lot of pride in what he does, and he wants to make Walt proud in some ways. What I love is, so there is this very meta moment where Todd tells his uncle and Kenny about the train heist and he gets into the grimy details of the train heist, but doesn't mention the fact that he shot a kid at the end. And this feels like the kind of insult that you would say about fans of the show who are only into that part of it and kind of misreading the show. Yeah. And you've mentioned your commentary on Todd and we can mention that later if you'd like. Um, but it's it it definitely goes to show you where his mindset in in a lot of ways I think he's a sociopath is the best way to describe Todd psychopath sociopath I don't know what the clinical definitions of those two are necessarily but he is he definitely falls into that pattern because he is not above just shooting someone in the face as we've seen him do multiple times let's talk about the Mexican restaurant scene it's so tense it's so uncomfortable and yet just a great portrayal of all characters you've got the two couples. Walton Schuyler, Hank and Marie talking about this entire situation, cards on the table. It, it, but of course, in very veiled, hidden terms, Walton Schuyler, very careful not to mention anything. But their one big request is to just keep their children out of the entire situation. And not only do Hank and Marie not want to comply, but Marie even makes a suggestion that Walt just kills himself and ends all of this. Like if he's this big bad where it all begins and ends with, if he just kills himself, maybe he should just do that. And Walt ends the meeting by giving them a DVD of what we saw being filmed, which uh, looked to be a confession, but we'd find out in the next scene what that really was. But this, this Mexican restaurant scene, Jerome, uh, this is definitely some secondhand awkwardness I experienced. Yeah, definitely a little bit of secondhand awkwardness. I think the person that they cast to play the waiter in this scene was pitch perfect because he is exactly the kind of waiter that it just annoys the piss out of you because he or she is just trying way too hard. 
And I know that I know who of people who, when they go to Los Angeles restaurants, they run into these kind of people all the time because they because so many of them want to be actors and actresses that they are always quote unquote on. And it just that's the kind of vibe that I think they were specifically going for is to just have this person just be so annoying and annoying to the point where it it still remains funny because you're seeing the reactions of the other characters also being annoyed so i think it just works out tremendously and one of the things that i was pondering again coming back to the tarantino thing because tarantino and tony scott they love the mexican standoff and i i was wondering is that the vibe they were going for and nobody had any guns in this scene but it kind of felt like they were going for the very mexican standoff vibe by going to a mexican restaurant yeah i guess that's I, I think that might be incidental. I think they all wanted to meet in a place where they knew that there wouldn't be any guns drawn or any violence. If you're in public, obviously that subdues your behavior more than if you're hashing it out in private. But they purposefully chose a local chain restaurant. They wanted it to feel, I guess, a little more grounded, a little more real. I had never heard of the place, but of course I don't live out in that part of the country. So I think it was it just was a matter of like what's a place like I don't know like I'm I'm trying to think like a Chili's or an Applebee's or something that's more to the the, the Southwest that fits that motif and they and I think they even went to it and it, like they were they sat down like the writers have had a meal and they were trying to figure out like okay the guacamole is something that they do actually like take pride in this is something that the waiter would interrupt in and and trying to just get the 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 actual genuine nature of the restaurant there. But I do like that, that overarching like cloud of a Mexican standoff with, with it being a Mexican restaurant. I did not consider that. Uh, And I'm also disappointed that they left without eating. Like who goes to a Mexican restaurant and doesn't eat at the Mexican restaurant. I'm truly offended by Walt's behavior. This, this, this Kevin is where I draw the line. I mean, I would not be hungry in this situation. I would want a, a drink, which I believe that they at least had some margaritas, or at least Skylar did. For that, I cannot blame them. Yeah, I mean, you get the right margarita, and you drink one of those, and you are ready for bed. But you couldn't bring home lunch to poor Walt Jr.? Come on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of crappy. But Walt Jr., he gets the short end of the stick a lot. Yeah, it's, it's true, he does. But we'll get to him later. What we do want to get to, though, is this confession video of Walt. But it's not of him admitting to be Heisenberg. It's a blackmail video where he frames Hank as being Heisenberg and that Walt was forced to cook meth for him. And the video is also the very first time where Hank hears that it was Walt's drug money that paid for his hospital stay and all of his rehab treatment. And that obviously puts him and Marie in a very tough spot. And in some senses, Marie has to kind of resign from her input in how Hank should act on the situation because there's this thing where Marie wants Hank to go into work and and turn in his brother right away. But Hank doesn't want to do that. One, he wants more proof, but he also just saw his boss get fired because of his affiliation with Gus and the fact that he didn't figure it out. How do you think they're going to react when they realize it's his brother-in-law that was right under his nose the whole time he didn't figure it out? It seems like he'd be doomed to the same fate. But I remember when I first watched his confession video and just watched Marie and Hank with their jaws open watching this, I was just totally blown away by this whole scene. What did you make of this? I was totally shocked by it because I knew that there was going to be something to this confession CD, but everything that Walt says is exaggerated, but 
it's not that far from the truth. And I think that's the scariest part that he has created a plausible scenario for himself where he twists every action that he describes just a little bit, even down to why he has marks on his face because he was physically quote unquote, physically threatened by Hank. So I think it's just scary just how well, Walt is able to lie at this point and just how easy it is for him to lie. And the fact that Skylar is tacitly able to just go along with this. And what I think this makes you realize is just how amoral everything about this show is and the people surrounding Walt have been for so long that people have just kind of gone along with it. And that's one of the ways that Walt has been able to get away with things. And I think that this is a theme that I'm going to return to later as we get into future episodes, but it's the amorality of this world that has allowed Walt to get to this point. And it's something that's going to allow him to continue to get away with things because he ultimately is he is a person who thrives on the actions of others and others letting him get away with things and in doing this confession cd walt is clearly arrogant enough to think that he's going to get away with this because he has hank over a barrel and he knows that by saying what he said in the cd there's going to be just a little bit of tension between marie and hank as well So I think that it was a tremendously well-executed scene, and I think that it really just shows how far Walt is willing to go uh, to get his way and to continue getting away with everything. And yeah, I mean, it's just, I think that almost every episode at, at worst is very good, but I mean, this episode just has two scenes back to back that are pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. And what I liked about what you said is about kind of people letting uh, Walt do what he does is at this point, Skyler knows Walt is smart and how he's and how capable he is that she's almost kind of letting him drive the proverbial car right now. Like you take the wheel and I'll and I'll follow suit. Of course, she would speak up if something really was going to harm her, her family or whatever. But she's putting her full faith and trust in Walt to ride this out, to keep them to keep them as safe as he can and make it so that hopefully if the cancer takes him and she's left alone, like her and her kids and the money and whatever else is okay. We need to talk about Jesse, mostly because Aaron Paul won the Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for this episode. And there's two big moments with Jesse here. The first is a meeting with Walt in the desert. Saul's there too. And Walt tells Jesse for his own safety, he should use Saul's connection to start over his life under a new identity. And Jesse's really the only person who can get away with snapping back at Walt and telling him like it is. And he does this here. He's saying, you know, this is BS. You're not concerned for my safety. You only want me gone for your own good. Even once again, stating he thinks that Walt kill Mike. And Jesse says that if Walt wants me gone, just say so. And instead, Walt embraces Jesse with a hug, and Jesse cries and says nothing. And he ends up deciding that he's ready to begin a new life under a new identity. And we get this waiting spot where he's waiting for this van to take him away. But he notices at the time both his marijuana and the rice and cigarette are gone. And this just sets him off. He's seeing red. He goes back to Saul's office, punches him in the face. That's that's a second punch we get here. Even holding 
him at gunpoint. He's he's now thinking about Brock again. He wants to know about his role in poisoning Brock and saw cops taking the marijuana. He thought that if he had it on him, it would interfere in this pickup, this new identity pickup. And he also admits to, to getting the rice and cigarette, but said he had no idea what Walt's intentions were. And still seeing red, Jesse drives off in Saul's car. Uh, Saul's calling Walt to let him know what's going on. We get a great scene of Walt going to the laundromat and having to remain calm as he gets a gun out of the soda machine. And the episode ends with Jesse, who is pouring gasoline all over Walt's empty house. And you're thinking, uh-oh, something's about to go down. But fair to say that Aaron Paul should have won the Emmy because of this episode. Obviously, his whole performance in the season, I'd say, is Emmy-worthy. But this is really maybe his standout performance. Yeah, I think Jesse is a obviously a focal point of the second half of the season. But he really isn't as—he's probably not in it as much as you think he is. And even within this episode, it's really only the second half— where we see Jesse prominently featured in that conversation in the desert. And I think what you have finally seen is that Jesse understands that he is in an abusive relationship with Walt, something that he has never seen or come to realize before. And he has, he is now seeing through the facade and it's because he's seeing through the facade that he then realizes just what happened to Brock as well. And he understands that Walt is a monster an even bigger monster than he possibly could have even ever realized. And it causes him to snap. And we've seen him snap a couple of other times because unlike Walt, I think he is, I think Walt's, he does have a couple of moments where he snaps and gets very emotional. Of course, this has led, you know, the very famous scene of the pizza ending up on the roof, but we really have seen Walt be able to control his emotions a lot better as he's kind of gotten better at uh, becoming a drug Lord. But Jesse, on the other hand, has never really been the type of person to tamp his emotions down because that's one of the reasons that he still remains a human being and not a sociopath or psychopath. Jesse certainly is not without his flaws, but he is also the type of person who is not going to cross certain lines poisoning children, killing children. These are things that have always bothered him about being a part of the drug business. And it's very clear that he wants to separate from Walt and separate from this situation, but he can't do that because now he realizes that Walt is indeed a monster and he's got to do everything he can to get revenge. And I know that we've talked about the end gaming Hank and Walt, but it's clear now that Jesse also has to be a part of this end game. And it is a very dramatic moment when Jesse is pouring the gasoline all over the house. But I think that while it works in the moment, it, it kind of hinders the next episode because the next episode has to focus so much on this incident that I think it ends up kind of stalling the story just a little bit. And I think that episodes 9, 10, and 11 are outstanding, and I think episode 12 is probably my least favorite of the season. And by least favorite, I would say if every other episode is an 8, 9, or a 10, this is probably like a 6.5 or a 7. All right, well, let's talk about that episode. Episode 12 is Rabid Dog. And they and they get a little uh, wibbly-wobbly with the time here. As Walt comes to the house, at this point, Jesse is gone. Walt's wondering what the hell happened, because Saul's car is all askew in his, in his lawn. There's gasoline saturating the carpet and he finds a, a CD with drugs on it. So he realizes, all right, this Jesse was here. Saul and his guys can't find Jesse. And Saul makes the recommendation of, you know, Hey, might be time to pull an old yeller with Jesse. And then even Skyler later suggests that when Walt pulls his family from the house to take him to a hotel and tell Skyler really went down. And she said, you know, we've come this far 
with things being quote unquote okay to let someone like Jesse ruin it single handedly. And what we discover is that it was actually Hank that caught and stopped Jesse from burning down the White's house. And he talks Jesse into coming to his house and, and, uh, you know, filming this confession of everything that he and Walt did. Because, hey, if there's one way he's going to get back at Walt, the guy who poisoned Brock, this is a great way to do it. Falls in his lap. And Gomez and uh, Hank film Jesse telling him everything he knows about Walt. Uh, but the what he tells them doesn't give them enough to pin on Walt as proof. Uh, I also forgot to mention Hank overhears a voicemail from Walt to Jesse. And... Walt, in the meantime, left a second voicemail about a time and place for him and Jesse to meet so they can talk. And Hank wires up Jesse to go meet him in the hopes their conversation will be something to use against Walt. But Jesse is convinced it's all a setup from Walt, especially when he sees this intimidating character standing in a a caddy quarter from Walt. So he uses a payphone and says, nice try. I'm going to hurt you where you truly live. Hank's furious at Jesse for blowing it, but Jesse claims to have a better plan. And uh, the episode ends with Walt calling Todd saying, I may have another job for your uncle. And there's also a, a scene of Marie at her therapist where she says that it really admits to feel good when she thinks about harming Walt. It's a bit of a throwaway scene for her, but that's the episode. More or less, you get Walt uh, coming to his senses that maybe he's going to need to take care of Jesse if his plan of staying low, staying quiet is going to come to fruition. I think what this episode is really all about, it's about moving the chess pieces a little bit. You're trying to get Walt, Skyler, Holly, and Walt Jr. out of the house because you're clearly setting up that moment with him, with Walt getting the ricin. So getting them out of the house is really important. And the other thing is setting up this unholy alliance between Jesse and Hank. This is something that the show has inadvertently been building to for the last four seasons. And Jesse and Hank have certainly had their interactions and they've, they hate each other pretty much because of what Jess, what Hank thinks Jesse did to him and what Hank actually did do to Jesse. But now they realize that in order to tank, to take Walt down, they have to team up. And I think it's uh, it's a really great moment when, Marie realizes what's going on and she decides that Jesse is not going to go elsewhere. He is going to stay in the house and she's going to, they're going to treat him like he's just another house guest. And I think that those are some of the best moments in this episode. And the stuff with Walt at the beginning, I think is okay. I don't think it's anything special. I think it's something that we've kind of seen him weave these different tales and lying. And it's not something that I think is, is special, but I did like the way, the way that, Saul describes the old yeller situation. I'm not sure if it totally works, but Bob Odenkirk is so good at what he does and his delivery and understanding who Saul Goodman as a character is that I think the performance really makes it work because again, like I can't say enough good things about Bob Odenkirk and I almost wish that he was on the show a little bit more, but I, I can't complain that much because we have Better Call Saul the review and we're going to get all the Bob Odenkirk that we can handle. But like I said, I think that this, compared to the other episodes, is is okay. But I still think that there is a lot of they, – they, they do a good job of, again, moving the pieces so that we can get into kind of the final stretch. With four episodes left, we now know what's what the stakes are. We've got Walt and his family having to leave and we have – 
this alliance between Jesse and Hank. That we do in episode 13, Tohajali, the name of the Indian reservation where Walt buried all of his money a few episodes ago. Begins with Todd, Uncle Jack, and Kenny in their brand new meth lab, their compound. And Todd is now producing a 76% pure meth, which is better than what it was. But Lydia says it's not good enough for their international buyers and it needs to be blue. It's very important. It's part of their brand. Uh, Todd, he's still being a creep to Lydia. And he says he can do better. And it's at this time we see him get that call from Walt about having a job for his uncle. So now... They have something that Walt wants. Walt has something that they want, and they make this trade for Walt. He doesn't want to do it, but he'll do it for this case of getting rid of Jesse. One cook to teach Todd and go from there so they could have the the top quality product they can have uh, for having Jesse killed. So I guess that's the price of what it'll take to get Walt to, to break bad one more time at that at Jesse's expense. But the, the problem is still is now he needs to go find Jesse. So what does he do? He goes to the one person he knows that is going to get his attention, and that is Andrea. And he goes to her house, and he puts on this act about that he's worried Jesse's using again. Uh, he gives um, he gives her that um, Jesse's new phone number because I forgot Jesse gets a sweet Hello Kitty cell phone from Saul, and she leaves a voicemail. Uh, but the problem is, is Jesse never hears this. It's intercepted by Hank. He never knows of this call from Andrea because I think. That would have probably gotten him to crack if he did hear it, and Hank knows this. No, I think that you're you're kind of summarizing this episode very well, and what I appreciate so much is Jesse Plemons is somebody who was almost, a, he was a non-factor the first four seasons of this show, and now it feels like he's so integral. It feels like he is almost a main character at this point, because just in his interactions with Lydia, interacting with Andrea, talking to Walt on the phone and kind of being his assistant. We see him cooking the meth. And, you know, as much as people might look at that scene where Lydia's talking about branding and the distinct colors, I think that scene very much rings true because I I am not going to say which college I've worked at, but there have definitely been campuses that I've worked at where I have seen emails where branding and the co- specific colors that are used are truly seen as being more important than kind of whether people get hired or whether people can, you know, have a living wage and things like that. So uh, the branding conversation hit maybe a little bit too close to home. It's it's true, man. I mean, that's what people want is they want that color. That's why you heard about copycats using food dye and stuff to get the color they wanted. And that won't, that won't satisfy Lydia. She wants it to be same quality and blue naturally. So we go back to this thing where Hank and them need evidence to plant on Walt. And Jesse says that Walt would be too much of an egomaniac to get rid of his money. So now they need to go find where he's hiding his money. So they use this fake photo with Huel to make it look like that Walt shot Jesse to get him to tell them just enough information. Like the name of the place where they rented the van with the barrels. The fact that there were barrels and then seven of them, the color type, all that stuff. And then we get a scene where Saul's at the car wash telling Walt that Huel's missing and he's worried to the point where he himself is wearing a bulletproof vest. And at that time, Walt gets a, a photo texted from Jesse of what appears to be one of his barrels of money. And he's racing like hell now out to the desert. Jesse lies about finding it using a GPS tracker on the, the van that was rented by Saul and his people. And as Walt's speeding like hell to Tajali, he apologizes and admits to poisoning Brock, but says he made sure Brock was going to survive. 
He also runs down murders and stuff that he's committed, everything to protect Jesse. And Walt's phone cuts, cuts off as he gets closer and he realizes uh, that it's all a setup because he gets there and they're not there yet. But eventually Jesse, Hank, and Gomez pull up. Walt goes into hiding. And so what he does is he calls Jack and his gang, giving them the coordinates to his location because he wants them to come kill Jesse. But he calls that off when he realizes that Hank and Gomez are with them. And then he gives himself up. Gomez proudly gives Hank the honor of reading Walt his Miranda rights. Hank calls Marie proudly to tell her that he caught Walt. Maybe a bit premature, because even though it was called off, here comes Jack and his gang. And Walt's still yelling from inside Hank's car to call it off, but we engage in a firefight between the two sides to end this episode. Probably one of the best cliffhangers of these episodes. of Maybe not even just the season of all of Breaking Bad, where you're just like, oh my gosh, what... What is going to be the outcome of this going into the next episode? And this was indeed a Mexican standoff at the end of this episode. A true, authentic Mexican standoff. A new Mexican standoff. Oh my god. Oh, I just vomited in my mouth a little bit with you saying that. You're just mad because you didn't think of that yourself. Dean Morris comes off a little bit like a non-coked-up Tom Sizemore, I think. So I think uh, this really works out. Tom Sizemore, who was uh, at the end of True Romance, which is probably one of the best Mexican standoff endings that you'll see in a movie. And I agree with you that the, the final 15 to 20 minutes of this are, are so great. And I want to get back. I want to come back and talk about this scene, Kevin. But I have a very important question to ask you in regards to something that happens with Huel in the hotel. So we never see Huel come out of the hotel, right? We never see what happens afterward, correct? I guess not, because he's told not to leave, and they even have someone who's watching over him outside. So there is a possibility that Huel, to this day, could still be in that hotel room. I suppose that's true. I am. This makes me really concerned. Like, Huel didn't deserve this. Like, where's Huel? Hashtag justice for Huel. <laughs> I'm going to search that hashtag uh, after this and see if it's true, if there is one out there. That should be the, that should be the image for this episode is just Huel sitting in the room. <laughs> of all the things to happen in this season, the incredible imagery and the vivid memories and the flashbacks, and it's just Huel sitting in the hotel room. So amazing. By the way, uh, something I, I did not know until listening to this season of podcasts is that the two casting directors come from the world of comedy, which explains why people like Bob Odenkirk, uh, the the actor who plays Huel, who, who's a comedian, Gomez, who's a comedian, Bill Burr, all get cast onto this because – it's one of those things where, you know, hey, if you're if you're in the world of comedy and you can bring them into the world of drama. And I think even Vince Gilligan made a comment about if you're good at comedy, you can come to drama, but it's not necessarily the other way around. It, in some ways, it's logical. Uh, but it also once I heard that, I said, OK, well, that makes a lot of sense that these people with comedy backgrounds have been cast in these roles. And boy, I'm glad they did, because the all of those all those casting choices, I thought, were a plus. And a lot of times what happens when you cast comedians who have been in like sketch shows and things like that is they are much more willing to put their egos aside and play kind of these more character roles, like these smaller roles than some other actors might be. I mean, Bob Odenkirk, of course, was a part of Saturday Night Live and Mr. Show, and he knows the concept of teamwork and comedy. So he's much more likely to take on a role like this than somebody who is perhaps a more dramatic actor 
And I think that's another reason why you cast comedians because they understand what it means to be part of a team and they understand that they may not always get the best lines or the best moments, but that they are building something to a whole, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And is there anything you want to say before we get into the uh, the, the magnum opus of Breaking Bad? I think, yeah, I do want to talk about just the way that they build the tension. I think this the show just does it consistently so well. And I knew at the end of this episode, with the way that they were stalling, the Nazis were going to come. I think that was blatantly obvious. I don't even necessarily know if the show was trying to hold back on this point. But what I think that they are, the point that this show, I think, is trying to make at the end of this episode is that, yes, Walt is a bad person. Walt has broken bad so many times. But the reason that he is able to get away with everything, again, it's not just the amorality, but it's the hubris that Hank exhibits. Hank is the one who puts the cuffs on. He reads him as Miranda writes in this very arrogant fashion. He calls his wife even before they have him from the desert, again, showing his hubris. And I think that's a really important message that they've tried to get across. They have shown Hank be very, very competent throughout the last couple of seasons to the betterment of the character. I think it's really important that if you are going to do this endgame of Walt and Hank, that you have to build Hank up. You have to make Hank into the best possible character so that when he does get this moment, that it rings all the truer and it rings all the better and perhaps more heartbreaking when you realize that he is not going to be successful. But what we realize is that Hank has told us all along who he is. Hank is a person who sees the world in black and white. He is a person who, I don't think we ever get his direct motivation for why he wants to stop drug dealers. But again, I think it comes back to this idea of living in a world of black and white. But that ultimately, at the end, this is the type of person that he is. And he is unsuccessful because of his hubris and because he, it was. It had to be just him and Gomez, and they're like, it's like they're trying to be cowboys in the old west. And Breaking Bad takes a lot of influence from westerns. We're going to talk about it in the last episode, but definitely, you see that hubris exhibited in those final few minutes. You do see it, although I'll I will say this for Hank: this is something that he was doubted on. This this whole web of lies, not necessarily Walt, of course. But he had these hunches he put all together and finding Walt and this proof with the money, it makes him right. And finally, he's able to take pride in this. Even I think Gomez is why when he gives him over the Miranda rights, he's like, man, you've earned it. You see a great sense of pride in Gomez. So I do obviously his hubris cost him it, but I can see where he wants to soak this in after being told, stop pursuing this dead case. We've already solved this, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people doubting him to be able to have this this great moment where of satisfaction where he's right and he has Walt dead to rights uh, if he just if he just had put him in the car earlier and driven off who knows what how different this would have been but i understand Hank in that moment and why he did what he did yes it cost him but i do want to give him mild benefit of the doubt i mean i certainly give him credit i mean this was you know, he played a part, but I mean, this was still Jesse's plan. I think Jesse is almost the one that deserves the most credit because he is the one that's on the phone. And what I love about it is that Jesse gets on the phone with Walt and Jesse does not let Walt get off the phone because he knows 
that if he lets Walt think for even a second, he knows that Walt's going to realize what's going on. The reason that Walt can't process everything that's going on is because Jesse is rushing him and yelling at him and saying all these things. That's why this plan is able to be executed. And you understand just how much Jesse knows Walt at this point because he doesn't let him off the phone. And I think that's a really effective character moment for Jesse, too. And he can't let him off the phone so they can track him to the site, of course. That is also true. And now, uh, this, the, so the episode that we are about to talk about, Ozymandias, this, to me, is the peak of Breaking Bad. It is the best episode. And uh, the final two episodes are still very good, but this is absolutely the crescendo of the show, in my view. I'm going to leave the accolades for Ozymandias till the end. We'll go through the plot first. We actually start with a flashback to simpler times, Jerome, the very first cook of Jesse and Walt, back in the RV, back into Hajali, where the money is now buried. They're waiting for it to cool. Walt's outside, and he's contemplating the first lie he's going to tell Skylar about what he's, what he's not doing. And as Walt and Skylar are on the phone, she's pregnant still, she first suggests the name Holly for their yet-to-be-born baby. By the end of the call, Walt is sold on it. They're talking about picking up a pizza for dinner, blah, blah, blah. And then we slowly see the RV and Walt and Jesse fade away and in just a blank desert. What I like most about this is the behind-the-scenes tidbit is that this RV scene out in the desert is the final scene they shot for the show, period. So for the cast and the crew and everybody, this was like a, a a very joyful, like nostalgic trip because you got Walt back in his first season look. You got Jesse back in his first season look, and they're kind of back to where it all began. So I, I like that factoid that this is the very final thing ever shot of Breaking Bad, the television series. And it just goes to show you how far Jesse and Walt's relationship and how far they've come as people going back to this first scene, back to their first cook. I love the idea that they start off with a literal boil because of what happened at the end of the previous episode. And like you, I think this is, I, I love the way the black, that the show uses flashbacks. I think I've said this before, but I think it's really economical and it's not something where you're getting entire episodes, but you're just getting these moments before the credits or sometimes uh, with Gus, you get an extended sequence, but they always serve a very clear purpose. And I think that is a, that is a really fun factoid. And I just think that this scene works and we see Walt practicing his lying before he talks to Skylar. And this of course becomes important later. And it's something where we realize that at this point, Walt would not need to practice lying because he's just gotten so used to it. He could just do it naturally at this point. And I just, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this uh, this scene. And what I especially liked is because the director of this episode is Ryan Johnson. I don't know if he directed this specific moment, but when they are fading away, the effect of them fading away looks like what they did in the movie Looper, which is the movie that Ryan Johnson did. I don't know if that if there's any connection, but the visuals just struck me as being very similar. Uh, it's possible. I don't know that it's... They didn't, they didn't say one way or the other. I'll, I'll put it that way. But yeah, I could see that. It's been a long time since I've seen Looper, so I'll take your word for it. Would Looper have been out by the time they shot this season? Eh, it may have just come out, because I think they filmed it like in very late, early, late 2012, early 2013. 
And I think it just came out in like fall of 2012. Yeah, I mean, because Looper is definitely the movie that got Ryan Johnson set up for Star Wars. And this, I mean, that movie was, especially because it was original, was a huge hit. And for him to direct this episode, I mean, that's a huge get at, at this point in his career. And the fact that the episode is probably the best episode of the series ever. I mean, that just speaks to a lot of things. And it's the best because literally so much happens. And Kevin, why don't you describe some of what happened? Sure. So, uh, well, I also want to say uh, Ryan Johnson on the podcast and everyone was being very coy about what Ryan Johnson was doing next in his career at this time. I'll just put it that way. So we go. So then the, the episode proper starts with a firefight. Gomez was shot and killed. Hank was shot in the thigh. Hank gets apprehended by Uncle Jack. Jack has his men go find Jesse as he's planning to kill Hank. Walt is pleading to save Hank's life. He's even offering the $80 million he's buried. So we, we, we get a, a number on how much money is buried. Walt just simply asks Hank that, promise you're going to drop this whole case and you'll be saved. And Hank says, Walt's too stupid to see Jack made up his mind 10 minutes ago. Hank is shot in the head and killed. Walt's legs collapse underneath him, as does the ground underneath him. And he is just a, a mess in this moment. Just totally like deer in headlights overcome with Hank being shot and killed right in front of him. So didn't have to wait long to, for this episode to begin. And Gomez and Hank are no more. Well, I predicted that Hank would not make it out of this season. I'm not sure if I expected it to happen in this episode, but you could certainly see at the end of the last episode that there was good. This was not going to end well for anyone involved. And we open with Gomez already being dead at this point. So I think that is a very shocking visual in itself. And then of course you get Hank and uh, the scene with him and Jack and, and, and his crew. And yeah, it's just, it's a really, it's a really dramatic moment and it's one that's been building. And Walt is once again, having to deal with the repercussions of what, of his of his actions and this is the ultimate this is the this is his rock bottom moment because hank is dead and walt is directly responsible for it and i i love when movies and tv shows go silent on moments like these because i think it is so much like uh, you've seen the um, uh, you've seen the end of episode three right star wars episode three yeah when Vader does the no, and it's legitimately one of the worst things that I've ever seen. I much prefer when you can see them yelling, but you don't hear it. I think that's so much more effective because then it comes, I think it just comes across less like overacting at that point. And it's just because TV is a visual medium. Sometimes it's just better to see things and not necessarily to hear them. But I mean, you can't this, you can't get a better scene than this in any way. I think the flashback was just so well done. And the way that this scene is shot, you are, de- you are dealing with a director who knows what he's doing because just the way the action is shot, kind of the back and forth, this is not shot like a TV, TV episode. There are a lot of very cinematic moments that come across in Ozymandias and the scene with Hank get dying in the way that, that it's edited is just impeccable. And there's still 45 minutes of show left at this point. Yes, yes, there are. Gomez and Hank are buried. And Todd kind of calls a little bit of the shots here because they're taking the barrels of money, but he allows 
He convinces them to leave one barrel of money with Walt. Todd then also convinces them not to kill Jesse, who they find hiding under his car, but rather to take him back to their base so they can kind of figure out what he's told the DEA. And Walt, this to me is a great two-faced Walt moment because he finally tells Jesse that he watched Jane die and he could have saved her and, and decided not to. I think the writers really wanted Walt to finally tell him this, and I think th- the reason I say it's two faces, I think it's something that Walt wanted to get off of his chest, but I also think as Jesse's being taken away, he just wanted to give him another gut punch, a big F you, as he's being taken away by, by Jesse or um, by Todd and the gang. Yes, and I just, it's so heartbreaking because I think we've always had an awareness that Walt has was indirectly responsible for Jane's death, but this is something that happened three seasons ago. It isn't something that's been referenced a great deal. You really haven't gotten a lot of flashbacks. So to just bring this up out of nowhere, this is a great reward for the people who have been following this show all along and just paying something off that happened three seasons ago. I think it's a tremendous tribute to the writers because they've slowly had Jesse realize that Walt is a monster and the moment with Brock being poisoned and Jesse realizing that was huge. And this was another bombshell because Jesse had no idea. And it's just, it's really heartbreaking. And yeah, Todd, Jesse Plemons is just fantastic. And I, uh, I want to make mention of the fact that I think Jesse Plemons is just so fantastic in this role because again, he's being introduced so late in the game And I think it would have been really easy for them to half-ass it or to not pick somebody who's as good as Jesse Plemons. But he just comes on, and it's like he's been a part of the show since the very beginning. And I love – if you're going to introduce a character late, then you really have to do a good job of writing that character. And they did a great job uh, with Jesse Plemons. I do love when Walt is driving away and his engine dies and he has no gas. He realizes he has no gas. The song that it's playing, the song that it's playing is times are getting hard. (laughs) And that, yeah, that they are. And uh, you see him having to push the barrel of money through the desert. Did you notice the little Easter egg they threw in there in the desert? No, I didn't. What was it? Walt's pants that he lost in the very first episode on the RV are caught on, I forget if it's a tree or a cactus, in the background as he's pushing the barrel up to the native's house. That is fantastic. That is, uh, again, you've, you've just got to give these writers all the credit in the world. And I'm sure it's not just the writers, but I'm sure the set designer had a lot to do with that part too. Most definitely, yes. And then Walt buys a truck and we'll get to him in just a second, but... For Jesse, what we find out is that he's being kept hostage at the at Uncle Jack and Todd's place. They're basically keeping him hostage and have him cooking meth in uh, in in their headquarters. And Jesse also notices there's a photo of Andrea and Brock tacked to a pillar in the warehouse. So a small threat looms over him as he cooks meth and uh, what what could happen if he decides to go against their orders. Which uh, we will see what happens when he goes against their orders next, uh, maybe in the next episode or two. But that's really it for Jesse in this episode, but he's a he's in a very bad place. I do want. I think it's worth pointing out that it's very clear that the Nazis are torturing Jesse, and it's something that we see visualized in his face and the rest of his body. But I like the fact that the show does not turn the show does not become torture porn. A lot of shows would very easily have 
had scenes where Jesse is getting tortured to build sympathy. I'm really glad they didn't take that shortcut because number one, torture scenes are gross. And number two, that's not what the show has ever been. There have been some gruesome, this, this show has had some gruesome, violent moments, but it has never gazed. It's never been, it's never had a violent gaze about it. If that makes sense. No. And I think they are, it's not only that it hasn't a violent gaze about it, but they are very judicious when they have those moments. Obviously, I think part of the reason why they why they didn't have the shootout um, in episode two with Declan and them is obviously for money's sake. But you don't want to have too many shootouts in one season. You want to save that for the end of episode 13, beginning of this episode. You don't want to have both Gomez and then Hank being shot because it takes away from one or the other. So they're very they, they pick their moments like this. And they make them count when they do show them. And I think that's another reason why they don't show Jesse being beaten is because what what would that achieve and wouldn't it take away from some other things? There, there's kind of a two-pronged thing there, I think. What's very unfortunate is that with all this going down, nobody's informed Marie of what's happened here. And she decides, I'm going to go to the car wash. I'm going to tell Skylar everything that's going on. and But I'm going to, I'm going to support you, her. And I'm going to tell her this if she does it on two conditions. The first being destroying every copy of that confession. And she needs to tell Walt Jr. right now everything that, you know, just get the air cleared of every single thing that's been going on. Because at this point, Walt Jr. is also working at the car wash part time. And the he, and she has to go along with it. I mean, at this point, she thinks that Hank has Walt and there's nothing she can do. So, again, we don't see her telling Walt everything but or Walt Jr. everything. But they come back to him. He's heard everything. He's all the emotions. He's hurt. He's angry. He's confused. He calls the whole thing bullshit. One of Walt Jr.'s favorites and calls his mom just as bad as Walt for going along with everything. Did you think that uh, the way that R.J. Mitty as Walt Jr. reacted was uh, in character and uh, that Marie, what she did was right move, wrong move? Maybe that's a hard judgment to say, but uh, your opinion on the whole situation, I suppose. Did you know the teenagers are emotional, Kevin? No, I was never a teenager. So I think his his reaction is in line with that of a teenager because what teenagers do is they straddle that line between having a fully adult, mature reaction and crying like a baby. And I think that, that, that his reaction is kind of right down the middle because he does call it bullshit. And from Walt Jr.'s perspective, I totally understand why he is why he feels this way because just imagine if you had not watched breaking bad and you didn't understand everything and somebody was just telling you about the situation. I think you would also like if, like if you read a newspaper story about this incident, you would probably see Skylar in the same light as you did Walt, even if what Skylar did wasn't in the same ballpark. And again, I think this comes back to the idea of Walt is able to get away with this because Others allow him to get away with it, and Skyler is just as much of a part of that. And I am not a member of the camp that thinks Skyler is a bad person because she's a woman and is keeping Walt from having this fun. I'm not that. I'm not an idiot. But I think that there is something. There is a case to be made that Skyler has enabled his behavior for so long that when Walt Jr. finds out that he has every right to be angry, but I also think it's one of those situations where Walt Jr. should just be mad at the entire family because Marie also in not directly, 
there has to be something in the back of Marie in Marie's mind that knows that something isn't right with this gambling thing. And the fact that she doesn't pursue it and that she does it, that she just accepts the money. That is also part of this enabling behavior too. And nothing takes away from the fact that Walt, that Walt senior is a monster, but when Walt Jr. finds out, yeah, he should be pissed. Anyone, if if this was a real-life situation, I think a lot of people would have a reaction very similar to Walt Jr. What a day in your life when you're just going to work at a car wash and then suddenly your mom pulls you in the office and tells you everything that Walt has done. That's That's got to be up there with one of the worst days of your life. I mean, because his whole life is being shattered right in front of him because, you know— he knows what's gone on the last year between the cancer, the quote unquote gambling, having to leave the house. And now just all of that is, uh, is being thrown into flux. I would imagine that, that whatever money that Skylar's laundering is going directly to a therapist for Walt Jr. Now. Oh, it has to be right. Yes. And, uh, we get quite the dramatic scene, which I assume you're going to be talking about now. Yes. Cause again, Skylar was told that, that Hank has Walt and he's in prison. So she has to be awfully confused when her Holly and Walt Jr. Come home. There's a strange truck in their driveway and Walt is hurriedly packing up everybody's stuff. And he's just telling them, pack all your most important things. We got to go. We got to get out of here. I'll explain everything later. And all Skylar wants to know is where Hank is. And he's not giving a straight answer. So she comes to the conclusion that Walt killed him. Maybe not directly, but I would not say that she is incorrect. And it gets to the point where, she threatens him with a kitchen knife and slashes his hand. And they get in a tussle on the floor, and Walt Jr. calls the police on his dad. And so Walt, with his hand bleeding, has to grab Holly and drive away as Skyler's chasing him. And boy, man, this is a. I mean, you're just watching this family so quickly crumple in front of your face, all this going down. And, and later we actually get to hear Holly say her first word, which is mama at a gas station where Walt is changing her. It's like a weirdly sweet scene with Walt and Holly, but obviously he knows like nothing's going to end well with him having the daughter. But I mean, he has to take her because that's the only thing that's going to keep Skyler from throwing him to the wolves as if he has Holly. And man, this scene is it does not get any easier to watch. I'll tell you that much. It's it's probably the most harrowing scene in the entire show. And it is a crucial moment for Walt Jr. Because for the most part, a lot of his anger has been directed at his mom. I think we saw some moments early in the run of the series where he was angry with his father. But for the most part, he seems to be taking Walt Sr.'s side. And the fact that he eventually makes this dramatic decision to take his mom's side is a huge harrowing moment and in that moment walt senior realizes that he's basically lost his son and that's probably another reason that he he takes uh takes holly and yeah it is it is not a comfortable scene to watch it is incredibly well choreographed and just the way that just the way that they use the house is just pretty fantastic and I cannot imagine a scene like that where you have so many things going on and you basically have four characters. I mean, Holly's kind of in the background and she has to be a part of this. And you have this really, really young toddler almost involved, younger than a toddler. I can't imagine just how much of a nightmare just logistically putting the scene together. But then you put the emotions on top of it. And this becomes probably one of the best scenes in the entire show. It's not one that I will care to revisit anytime soon, but 
I, I, I really admired just the way that they were able to get this, get the messages across and what it was for Walt Jr. And it was kind of his signature moment. It was his, his time to shine. And it's, it's amazing to think that in an episode where Hank and Steven Gomez are dead or get killed, that that might be the third best scene in this episode. And even this scene with the knife and the family fight, it might not, it's might be the second best scene in this episode. Do you think the last thing we're about to discuss is the best scene of the episode? That was me transitioning it over to you, Kevin, to describe the, uh, the final few minutes. Okay. Well, the police and the, and Marie at this point are at the white house and this is when Walt calls and is talking to Skylar and they're now uh, naturally the police are tapping the phone and Walt gives a masterful performance about saying that he accuses her of never supporting him and that he alone built his fortune. And she's obviously confused at first, but then she realizes Walt knows the police are listening. And all of this is to get her out of any collusion or support or anything that can tie her into this racket. He wants the police to know that he it was him and him alone building his fortune in this drug empire. He even mentions that they'll never see Hank again, which causes Marie to break down. Uh, and he says he has things to do when Skylar asks for him to bring home Holly. So snaps his burner phone in half, leaves Holly at a nearby fire station with his address pinned to her outfit. And the same van Jesse was going to take to get a new identity pulls up and takes Walt and his barrel of money and luggage away. And the episode ends with us seeing a single dog crossing the street behind them. You said this was your favorite scene of the episode, Jerome. Take it away. I do want to mention before we get to this, the the big scene with Walt's speech is Holly has just the saddest look on her face at the fire station. And however they were able to get that, I, maybe I don't want to know how they got that sad of a face, but I do want to point that out, that to be able to get that from a, such a young actor is pretty amazing. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's Walt giving the performance of a lifetime. This is Walt's Oscar moment because he basically lays out kind of the entire series and everything that has gone on these first, these first four and a half, almost the end of the fifth season at this point. And he knows that he is putting on this performance. And I read a really interesting piece in the New Yorker of all places. So, you know how white I am just by reading the New Yorker, but I think what this piece was kind of saying is that this speech was kind of an ode to the quote unquote bad fans of the show. And I don't think it's any secret that the writer of this episode is a woman. And I don't know if that has anything directly to do with it, but that this, this speech is really symbolic of just how bad of a person Walt is because he is able to give this performance and he is able to say all of these evil, terrible things. And he does all of these evil, terrible things in this episode. This is, I mean, he does just some abhorrent things from the speech so I think that what just makes this scene work so well is that Walt is not only giving a performance, but we have seen him literally at his worst throughout this entire episode. And it is just the climax of that. And on a first viewing, it would be very easy to miss the fact that he is giving a performance in the speech because of how vile it is, but it's so well done. And yeah, I mean, this is 
absolutely the best episode of the series. Just a ton of credit to the writing staff and to Ryan Johnson, the director, because I do think the last two episodes are very good. But to me, you're, you're not going to get any better than this. And if this had been the series finale, I almost would have been okay with it. Well, you talk about giving credit to the writing. So let's talk about some of the accolades this has received. Three of the Primetime Emmy Awards came from this episode alone, and that's out of total of five. We talked about Aaron Paul, Breaking Bad won Best Dramatic Series this year, and the three Primetime Emmys it won was for Brian Cranston for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series, for Anna Gunn for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series, and for the writer Moira Wally Beckett for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. So when one episode alone can catch you three different Emmys, that's a pretty special episode. Alan Sepinwall, who you mentioned a lot, in 2016 said, if you were to ask me what is the best hour of dramatic television ever, I would say Breaking Bad's Mandius and not think twice about it. The Ringer, we've talked about them. They ranked all 62 episodes of Breaking Bad. This was number one. And weirdly, what's maybe most impressive to me is IMDb is a website I only use as a resource to look up stuff, but you can vote on episodes like a, a one through 10 ranking. And as of this recording, Amongst every episode of television that has ever existed in the history of the world, Ozymandias is the only episode of any television show to have a perfect 10 out of 10 on that website voted by the fans. There's some 9.9s out there and and some other series. uh, And there's actually a 9.9 that just came with what many call the Better Call Saul version of Ozymandias. But this is it. This is the one and only 10 out of 10 on IMDb, which when you think about prestige television, you're going back to, you know, the I Love Lucy days, you're talking about The Simpsons, Sopranos, whatever else in the history of television, and this is the only perfect score on IMDb. Boy, that's a hell of a television episode. Absolutely. This is definitely one of the best episodes of TV that I've ever seen. I think this ranks right up there with the best episodes of The Wire. The Suitcase is probably my favorite Mad Men episode ever, and that that would definitely be up on the list of my favorite episodes. And absolutely, I think... All the accolades are, are so well-deserved, and that that's really all that you can say. And the thing that's so amazing to me about this episode is that it is not written by the creator, and it's not even directed by one of their primary directors. Uh, to me, the primary directors have been Vince Gilligan and Michelle McLaren. I know that Gilligan doesn't direct as much because he's also showrunning, which is kind of a pain in the ass. So that's the that's the crazy part to me is that you know you give this to a director who yeah he's done a couple of episodes, but the fact that he has directed this and has gone on to direct Star Wars and Knives Out and is an Academy Award nominated writer at this point, I mean it's it's pretty amazing to think about because there are a lot of TV directors who they generally stay in the vicinity of TV and that's not as true as it used to be, but it's pretty rare for somebody to go from a director like this to then go into feature films and just be successful that quickly. And uh, it's pretty incredible. Ozymandias, great television. It is interesting you mentioned that because they talk a lot of, of on here about how going from being a, a television actor to a movie actor to a Broadway actor, like crossing those different avenues was just something that didn't exist even as, you know, not that long ago. It was pretty much you picked your medium and you stuck with it. And if you were in movies, it was lesser than to go on television and all that. And just so much has changed and how many have crossed over both with not just acting, but writing and producing and editing and all that stuff. And just to see, you know, holding this up to some of the best films ever made. This this series of shows is just really remarkable and shows you how long we've come. 
Uh, so we will talk about the last two episodes. Granite State is episode 15, and AMC gave them clearance for each of these episodes to air at 75 minutes in length, 22 minutes of commercial. So basically 53, 54 minutes of television here. And I know they were very grateful to get that because cutting out some of this stuff in the last two episodes would have been very tough. This one I did split in between two characters, Jesse and Walt. So we'll start with the Jesse part where we actually start with uh, Uncle Jack and Marie's home. I'm sorry, Hank and Marie's home was ransacked by Uncle Jack and company. They got Jesse's confession tape. This shows you how sick Todd is because he has a little smile and smirk. Jesse mentions his name on film like Todd's happy to hear this. Uncle Jack wants to kill him, of course, for naming him, but Todd wants to keep him alive so he can cook for them, and this is Uncle Jack gives him a hard time about wanting to impress Lydia, but he allows him to proceed. And speaking of Lydia, Todd meets with her and tells him that, hey, our product is now 92% pure, and we have Jesse Pinkman to thank, and this is what keeps her wanting to do business with them because she originally wanted to lay low. And that night, Todd gives Jesse some uh, leftover ice cream as a reward for producing some good quality product, uh, and it's also worth mentioning that Jesse now has the photo of Andrew and Brock with him in his little cage. He uh, he has a paperclip with him to pick his his handcuff lock with. Uh, and he uh, asks Todd to leave the, the sheet off his cage so he can enjoy the stars. But Jesse, he has ulterior motives to escape. And he doesn't get too far before he's caught on a security camera. And he says, well, you can just kill me and get it over with as punishment. But they don't kill him as punishment, Jerome. They drive and they kill Andrea instead. Todd is very golly gosh about killing her, but he, he at least making sure Brock isn't there. And he says it's nothing personal and all this, but oh, watching Jesse watch her get shot in the back of the head and his reaction is just so damn heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, this episode has a lot going on with Walt, but I think it's really important to focus on the Jesse stuff as well, because just what they do to Jesse is... And we, like I said, we don't see any of the torture, even though it's very clear that's what's going on. But in this episode, you are very clearly getting Todd. You're setting Todd up to be just the worst person in the world, even worse than Walt at this point, because Walt has pretty much hit his rock bottom. And now he's off in the New Hampshire woods. So now Todd has to be the most evil person in Jesse's life. And there there are very few ways that you can actually do that because, of course, Walt has tried to poison a child and he let his girlfriend die. So how do you do worse? You have Todd shoot his new girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, I guess, in the back of the head in the coldest possible fashion. And it's uh, it's pretty terrible. And did I did we forget to mention Todd's a Nazi? Can't forget that part. I think we may have mentioned it once or twice. Nazis are the worst. Punch them all in the face. But Jesse Plemons and Aaron Paul are very, very good together. They have a great chemistry. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, even though they're not romantic or even platonic partners. But the way that they play off each other is really, really good. And yeah, I just think that what they were able to do in this episode with those two characters is so important. Because you're, you're trying to set up the finale and what you want Jesse to do to Todd, but you gotta, you've got to have a moment where there is no going back. And I think that Todd shooting Andrea in the back of the head, there's no going back after that, even though he's done a lot of terrible things. This, this is the worst. Yep. And you need something that's going to get Walt and Jesse on the same page of something going into that final episode. And this is it. 
This is it for for Jesse. So let's get to Walt here. The episode actually opens up with us seeing the van, the red van, arriving at the vacuum store. But it's not Walt. It's Saul inside. He, too, is leaving the area for Nebraska, apparently, and getting a new identity. And we learn of Ed the Disappearer. And who plays Ed the Disappearer, Jerome? Robert fucking Forrester. You sent me that text once you saw him, and I, I'm I'm happy that you were as happy as I was for Robert Forrester to be put in this role. He is just fantastic as Ed in this role. Robert Forrester is so good in this role, and unfortunately, he has since passed away. But I think it's one of those things where when you see Robert Forrester, I think the, mo- the most people listening to this podcast, at least I would like to think, have watched Jackie Brown and his performance as Max Carey. And I think that when you watch a Tarantino movie, you get used to the rhythms, you get used to the dialogue, and you get used to the kinds of characters that Tarantino likes to write. Tarantino likes to write for scumbags, whether it's men, women, black, white, Asian. A lot of the people in Tarantino movies are very scummy. They're very bad people. Max Carey stands out specifically because he is the complete opposite of any Quentin Tarantino character that has ever existed and will ever exist. And I think that it's not, it's not a one for one. It's certainly not the same. The character that he's playing on this show is not the same, but it very much feels like they are going for the same feeling in that so many of these breaking bad characters, especially because we're at the end of the run We've seen these characters do so many evil things and bad things, and all these characters, the volumes are turned up to a 12 out of 10, but then you just have Robert Forrester, who is able to convey things where you know that he's a badass, and you know he gets every, you know he gets shit done, but he doesn't have to raise his voice. He doesn't have to shoot Andrea in the back of the head. He doesn't have to poison people. He comes across like a guy who just gets things done. And when you cast Robert Forrester, that's what you want. You want that presence and you want somebody who is older and you want his cadence and you want all of these things. So the fact that nobody on the show has talked about the Tarantino influence is especially surprising because they basically use Robert Forrester in a similar position as Tarantino used him in Jackie Brown. Talent borrows, genius steals. That's what I've always heard. That is true. But talk about Robert fucking Forrester. Well, he's the best, but we have Walt and Saul are there at the same time getting ready to be discharged to their new locations. This is where Saul puts the idea in Walt's head to give himself up to the authority so Skylar can potentially keep the house instead of losing it, but Walt says he's only going to do that if he's going to be able to get his money to them and all their money to him. And Skylar is over her head with lawyers. She's resting at home with a cigarette when Todd, again, Uncle Jack and Kenny have to show up to, uh, and they're able to break in with even the police watching. They intimidate Skylar a little bit. Todd's still doing it in like a calm but very chilling manner. Just assures that she said nothing about them or especially Lydia because they know that she knows Lydia from the car wash and that she won't say anything. And uh, they fortunately let her live and leave when she convinces them that she hasn't and she won't. But just when you thought Jack, Kenny and Todd couldn't get any worse, them uh, standing over Holly's cradle and then threatening Skylar. Just if you didn't hate him already, this just uh, this just took the cake. Like given what Todd does in this episode, this almost feels like overkill and I understand why they had hit, why had why they had them surprise Skyler, 
but the police are outside and look, we know the police are not the most competent people in the world, but could you show us how they got there at least? Or at least explain it. I I don't know. This this actually bothered me because they put Holly in peril in the last episode, and now they're doing it again. And this show has never had to resort to those kind of tactics in order to get their message across. And again, given what Todd does later, I I did not like this scene. Okay, that's fair. I guess I liked it fine, uh, but I see your point. I will say that it's the only scene in the because uh, I love. I love the Robert Forrester and Brian Cranston stuff, so I do want to make sure, make that clear. Well, we get more of it because Ed takes Walt to his new home in New Hampshire, as we've established. That's hence the name Granite State, too. He's in a secluded cabin in the woods. There's two acres, and Ed warns Walt that he shouldn't leave. And Ed is actually doing something he doesn't usually do, giving him monthly supply visits. I like that he says, like, I don't usually do this, but uh, you are who you are. Walt's very tempted to leave, but never does. Like, it's it's interesting to me. Like, you feel like he's very steadfast in being like, yeah, whatever, to, to Ed and his commands. But when he gets to the end of uh, where he would leave the gate and go through uh, to the row, he never ends up doing it at first. And you talk about Walt hitting rock bottom with Hank. This, to me, this episode is all about Walt hitting his rock bottom as, mu- as like, months months go by and he's secluded. He has a TV that doesn't pick up any channels. Uh, he doesn't have internet. He's he's dropping a ton of weight because of the cancer and probably just his health supply at this point. This is where we, his hair and beard are now back. Um, uh, he but even now, like Ed's making these monthly drops, bringing him newspaper. He's having to get new glasses. He's got chemotherapy treatment for him, and Ed's catching Walt up on all this stuff about what's going on home. Skylar's back to using her maiden name. She's a taxi dispatcher to make money. Her and the kids have relocated to an apartment. Their former house is in shambles with a gate around it because it's become a tourist attraction. There's this nationwide hunt for Walt, and Ed is uh, not confident in Skylar's lawyer, who he saw on the TV, of doing a very good job. And I love the scene between them where Walt asks Ed, if something happens to me, will you make sure my family gets this barrel of money? And Ed just replies, if I said I would, would you believe me? And the, the saddest thing is Walt's so lonely and isolated at this point that he gives Ed an extra ten grand just to stay with him for an extra hour. And he's sitting in this chair. His He's so skinny, his wedding ring has fallen off. Uh, he has this chemo going into his body, and he's barely able to look or speak at Robert Forrester playing cards with him, but he just needs some companionship. And this is what he's getting. This, to me, is is until he calls Walt Jr. his rock bottom, for sure. I can see that. I, I To me, this is go, almost him going through rehab in a way, and it's not your traditional rehab. But to me... I think the symbolism is that when Walt is bald, he's basically Heisenberg. That's the way that it comes across to me. And he's so he's transitioning back into being Walter White. And I think that there is a distinct difference between those two people in a way that Heisenberg is this persona that he has been playing for all of these years. And I think he's just being very reflective of all of the bad things that he has done over the years and understanding that, he has to find a way to rectify this in, in some way. And the loneliness is undoubtedly a part of it, not being able to do anything and be a part of society. I mean, this is just, this is his new reality. And those scenes with Ed and Walt are fantastic. And Robert Forrester is, is so good in, in this role. And again, if you're going to introduce someone this late, you, you have to pick somebody like him because if you, if you pick a random character actor, like even a good one, I don't know if it's going to work, but 
when you have somebody like Robert Forrester who has that credibility with audiences, it uh, it doesn't get any better than this. And I just uh, I really appreciated those scenes. And I think that this was uh, this is a very very solid episode, except for the one scene. But I do want to point this out. I know that we're probably going to get to this, but uh, we do see that Elliot and Gretchen are on an episode of the the Charlie Rose Show, and it, it's it's funny to me because given what we know about Charlie Rose, I think Walt may have gone to the wrong house in the series finale, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, yes, I do. But I, I want to get to the Walt Jr. call first because this is to me where Walt absolutely hits rock bottom. He he's Walt is. I think hearing all this and getting to rock bottom, he's like, okay, I got to and, and hearing what Ed told him, he's like, I, I got to get what money I can to my family. So he finally leaves and walks to a nearby bar, makes a call to the high school, pretending to be his aunt Marie or getting a bartender, pretending his aunt Marie. So he can talk to his son saying, Hey, I'm going to send you a hundred grand to your friend, Lewis. He's always been a good kid. You know, it's going to say it's for him, but it's for you. Blah, blah, blah. And Walt Jr. is mad. He doesn't want his money. He's mad that he killed Hank, and he just wants him to fucking die already. This is Walt when he's so dejected, because if what is it, what is what life even worth living at this point if he's isolated alone the way he is, if his family hates him and they don't even want his money, the one thing that he's held on to. So he gives a call to the DEA and gives himself up, purposely even leaving the phone connected so they can trace him. And Walt orders a... a a glass of, uh, I forget what, exactly what he orders, uh, but I know Vince Gilligan said that's his father-in-law's favorite whiskey, which is why he put it in there. But he changed his mind because there is an episode of Charlie Rose on the bar television with Elliot and Gretchen Schwartz talking about gray matter. Uh, and Charlie Rose kind of grills him on a, a large donation they recently made for drug rehab because uh, he says he's questioning if this was a PR move, given what was a co-founder of gray matter. And boy, do they downplay his contributions to the company. And they say beyond even the name of the company, they can hardly remember any contribution they made. And we don't know exactly what's going on in Walt's brain left, but we see that the police have now showed up to the bar and they infiltrate it and Walt is nowhere to be found. And that's our penultimate episode here. I've got a really cool fact about. So you may remember Blood Money. The first episode of the season is dedicated to a gentleman named Kevin Cordasco, who was a 16 year old Breaking Bad super fan who ended up passing away from neuroblastoma, which is a nerve cell cancer. And both Brian Cranston and Vince Gilligan were able to meet him before he unfortunately passed away. And Vince Gilligan talks about, he said, when I met with Kevin and I, and I talked to him about the show and he said like, he was such a bright kid and his insight to the show was really interesting. And, you know, it asked what you like, what you don't like. And he said, is there anything you'd like to see before the show ends? And he said that he wants to know more about Walt's backstory and specifically Gretchen and Elliot. Cause we have not seen Elliot since season one. We had the one scene with Gretchen in season two with, her and Walt meeting, but we hadn't seen him since then. And Vince Gilligan says that Kevin mentioning this was the inspiration and in including them in the last two episodes. And he knew that you're probably never going to get the entire scope of that backstory, but their inclusion and the piece of the puzzle they play in the final episode was all inspiration of this breaking bad super fan that unfortunately passed away before the show ended. Um, and I thought that was a, a really cool, interesting story that I wanted to share. I think it's great that they brought Elliot and Gretchen back. And I think that anytime you bring characters back from the past in a final season and you do it in a way that makes sense, 
I like those kind of callbacks because I think it works so well to the history of the TV series. And what I think becomes really clear in a final season is everybody has a certain perception of what Breaking Bad is or what Mad Men is or what The Sopranos is. But the final season of a show is where writers really tell you what they think of a show and what the whole show has been about. And ultimately, they have done a great job of building up the rest of this cast and getting you invested in Skyler and Hank and Jesse. But at the end of the day, this is Walter White's show, and it has to end with Walter White in some way. And you got to bring him back. And Gretchen and Elliot are a perfect way back in. They haven't been on the show a lot, but they are so much the impetus, the drivers for what Walt has been the last five years. Because Walt has seen his opportunity to be a drug lord as compensation for the fact that he did not continue on with Grey Matter. So it sets up for just a really well done series finale. It does. And that series finale, episode 16 of season five, Felina, another extra long episode begins with Walt hiding in plain sight from the cops in this snow-covered car, and he he prays to whoever. Walt's not a praying man. I'm not sure if he believes in God, Satan, whatever he believes in. But he just says that if they get him out of there, he'll take care of the rest, and poof, a pair of keys appear in the car visor mirror, and off he goes. What I like about this is it reminds me of an earlier scene of the season where it might have been episode 12, and the one thing I really like about that episode is Hank and Gomez talking about their plans, and... Uh, Jesse saying, like, you don't understand, like, whatever plan you're planning isn't going to go the way you think it is. Like, Walt is lucky, like everything that just happens with him. Like, and it goes off and on about this. And this to me is the perfect just Walt's stupid luck. Yet again, the keys, there they are uh, in the visor mirror. And he's able to drive off in this car that he's broken into. I thought the, the symmetry, like Jesse saying that. And then here we have this worked perfectly. I just love this episode and this the way I mean, just this entire first scene is just perfect because it's not just Walt being lucky finding the keys, but it's also the scene with Elliot and Gretchen. The fact that Walt is very much in a mode. We've seen him. We've we've seen so many so many different facets to his character. We've seen him be very arrogant. We've seen a lot of desperation this season. We've seen a lot of sadness. But what you get in this episode is you get a resoluteness that has we've we've almost never seen it in in him and even though he's not a quote-unquote good guy because that has long since passed but we see him like in a, like there's so many westerns where you get this uh the the one last job or the one last opportunity or you get the person who's going to go in and you know try to save the town one last time knowing that he's probably going to die so you see that Western influence throughout this episode and Brian Cranston, I don't know if it's accidental or if it's on purpose, but you definitely see just even the way he's visualized the fact that he has hair and the glasses, they're very clearly going for like kind of a Clint East, like an old school Clint Eastwood look to him. I don't know if you picked up on that, but that, that definitely came across in his performance as well. Just a little bit of that, that Western, that cowboy image that's, they're going for that oh yes i think that's very overt and yeah this is walt walt knows that he is dead to rights whether the the cops find him in this national witch hunt and you know he didn't do himself any favors with the phone call or the cancer gets to him his time's coming to a close and now it's time for him to go back to new mexico and tie up loose ends before he bites it 
So some of those loose ends include him going to Elliot and Gretchen, the perfect patsies, to give the money he has remaining to his son when he turns 18 because they're very believable and nobody would bat an eye at their donation. Uh, and we could talk about how he, uh, he he convinces them to do it with uh, Badger and Skinny Pete coming back, pretending to be snipers with their laser pointers, and then being the informants to Walt that Blue Meth is still on the market and giving that indicator to him that Jesse is still alive. I loved this bait and switch because the music and the moment they played was so tense with the snipers scopes coming in through the windows right at their foreheads. Then we just find out it's skinny Pete and Badger with laser pointers in the forest. I love that. It's a beautiful scene because Walt has never respected Badger and skinny Pete ever. And in this moment of when he needs something the most, who does he call upon? He calls upon these two dumb MFers and they get the job done and it's it's so beautiful i just i love this scene so much because elliot and gretchen just come off like the the waspiest yuppiest of white people and their performances are so perfect and realizing it's badger and skinny pete just i mean it's it's a weird start because it's almost very light but i guess when you have a series finale where the final confrontation is going to be with Nazis. You might want to lighten things up before you, before you get to that point. Right. And now, cause he knows that Jesse's alive. He's got to get to those Nazis. And he, fortunately Lydia is a very structured person. And so he is able to intercept her meeting with Todd at the coffee shop, same time and place that he used to have his meetings with to uh, convince them to set up a meeting with this new meth way he's had to cook and Lydia strongly intimates to Todd that she made the meeting so he and Uncle Jack would kill him. And then Walt's final st- – and he does something with Lydia too that we find out at the end. But Walt's final stop before the meeting with, with Todd is with Skyler, who's home alone and has received a call from Marie warning her that Walt's in town because Carol's now alerted the authorities and whatnot. And we actually see it's great. There's a pillar in there and we reveal that Walt was in the room while she was taking the call. So what he does first, he gives her a lottery ticket with the coordinates where they will find Hank and Gomez's bodies. And then in a great monologue, he finally admits to her that he did not cook meth for his family. He did it for himself because he was good at it and it made him feel alive. And before leaving, he asks if he could see Holly one last time. Skyler allows him to see him in her crib as she's sleeping. And also from afar, Walt sees Walt Jr. coming off the school bus into the house. I'm glad we got this final moment between Skylar and Walt. I, you know, it's one of those things where do I know that this is the exact way Skylar would have treated Walt? Maybe not. Do I know that she would have let him see Holly? Arguable. But I think it's something that just as a fan, it's something I really wanted to see. And I don't think it was so far fetched that it took me too many hurdles to believe this was a believable scene. And I'm so glad that we got the scene with Walt admitting to them that all this meth cooking wasn't for them. It was for him. I just thought it was a perfect way for Walt to say goodbye to, to his family. I think you get Skylar being really numb. And that's, I think, a huge part of that scene and why it's so important. And I think the reason that it comes off as believable is that Walt seems to be honest. He at least he admits that he did it for himself. And I think that's a really important development because he has talked about doing it for his family for so long that it does come across as being complete BS. But the fact that he is finally willing to admit 
that he did it for himself, I think, is is a very plausible reason for Skyler to allow this to to allow Walt to see Holly one more time. But I think it's worth pointing out that even in this moment when Walt is being honest, he still tells a huge lie by saying that he has spent all of the money getting back to New Mexico, knowing full well that he gave the money to Elliot and Gretchen, and that Walt Jr. is going to get a surprise on his 18th birthday. So even in this very cathartic moment, we know that Walt is lying, and that is pretty consistent with his character, and it really continues to emphasize the fact that Walt's not a good person, that even in this moment, he cannot fully be honest. But he had to lie. I mean, to get the money to his family, which is what he wanted, he, he had to. Because if she knew, then this whole thing was for nothing. So uh, this is a lie I can excuse. I mean, I understand. Like, I'm not I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that it's, it's important to point this out because this is just – this is who Walt is. Walt is going to do what he needs to do at all times. And we see that multiple times in this episode. I think it is a really great – acted scene by both Anna Gunn and by Brian Cranston though. And yeah, I mean, I think that I don't think that this episode is as good as Ozymandias, but I think it feels like a natural conclusion. It feels like a definitive ending. And I think that's what you want any series finale to feel like you want to feel like you are satisfied and getting this moment with Walt and Skyler feels like a moment of satisfaction. And Thankfully, there is more to come, and we don't we don't just all of a sudden fade to black like some other series finales have done. Well, yes, it is very satisfying to see the scene, but is there anything more satisfying than killing Nazis? There is nothing more satisfying than killing Nazis. Well, and that's, that's Walt's final stop. He drives to Jack and Todd's hideout, and they're all ready to kill Walt until Walt uh, questions their, their pride by saying, you promised you were going to kill Jesse, and not only have you not done that, you've become business partners with him. And that pisses off Jack to the point where he has them and going and fetch Jesse from the lab. And when Jesse's there, Walt tackles Jesse. And what he has set up is a turret with the big gun in his car so that when he uses his car keys, they open up the trunk and it shoots all and kills all the bad guys except for Jack and Todd. And Walt and, um, and Jesse are safe, except Walt ended up getting shot in the side during all of this. You want to talk about satisfying, Walt shoots Jack dead, despite Jack trying to compromise by using Walt's own money to try to tell him, I can tell you where I, I hid all the money that we took from you. But more, even more satisfying is Jesse choking Todd to death with his own handcuffs. One of the most satisfying deaths in television history. But Walt gives Jesse the gun to shoot him, and uh, Jesse just tells Walt, you can do it yourself. Because again... It's so one of those things where Walt says, like, you know, this is something you want to do is shoot me. And Jesse says, just tell me that you want this for yourself and I'll do it. And Walt says, OK, I, I want to be dead. But Jesse, Jesse still he wants Walt to do it himself. But I still don't think Jesse can kill Walt. But again, the, the death of Todd was oh, so satisfying and all the Nazis for that matter. <laughs> and I love that Kenny's body is on one of those like stupid, like uh, like uh, massage chairs or something. And you just see his dead body flopping around. Just a great scene here. Yeah, I don't think that you could have ever imagined that this is how the show would end, but I think it is a logical conclusion because you basically have to clear the board, literally, and you've got to get rid of everyone except for Jesse, and this is the most logical way to do it, to have a literal machine gun just mow all of the Nazis and Walt down, and that's pretty much what happens, and I just think that 
it was it was a fitting end to this series, and I think you got all the moments that you wanted to out of it. Jesse and Walt kind of teaming up one last time, even though they're not friends, they're not father and son, they're not anything to each other, but they they partnered up and served a means to an end, and it's uh, it's it's pretty great. And I think that moment with Walt going around the uh, the lab and just falling. And dying. I mean, that's that's pretty much the way that I saw the series ending. It had to end with Walt's death, and I think it only makes a lot of sense. And we even get uh, the payoff to the Ryson as Walt has poisoned Lydia. Now, it wasn't altogether clear to me, but with Walt poisoning Lydia, Lydia is eventually going to die, or did he just poison her to like injure her or something like that? She's gonna die. Yeah, the the my understanding is the ricin is to the point where eventually you you do die with you know with that dosage that she got out of that singular large stevia packet. She's gonna die because he says goodbye, Lydia, when she calls on the phone. And that's the one thing I love about that is we hear in the episode where Walt calls Todd to tell him that he wants them to kill Jesse. That Todd's given Walt his own ringtone of "She Blinded Me with Science" by Thomas Dolby. And the only reason Walt picks up the phone is because he's given Lydia her own stupid ringtone, too. That's a that's a such a Todd thing to do is give everybody their own stupid, unique ringtones. Another reason that Todd deserved to die. Uh, And as Walt dies in his final lab, we do see that Jesse lives and he takes Todd's El Camino. Wink, wink, bursts through the gate and he is just filled with glee as he drives down the road and is able to survive. But yeah, Walt's. As he's in their lab admiring all their equipment, it's almost like he, like he, this is his legacy is the way that people are going to make meth and the, and the standard that he has set for the meth business has all been his work in Heisenberg and he gets to admire the work that he's made and the legacy he has left as he passes out from his wound and dies just as police arrive on the scene. That to me is why the ending is so great is he wanted his legacy to be the money and, and everything he left his family but really the legacy is as Heisenberg and what what changes he has made to the meth industry as a whole. And, uh, you know, going back to your predictions, Jerome, you predict that both Hank and Walt were going to be goners. You were a little, uh, you know, wishy-washy, but I wouldn't say wishy-washy, but I would say you were, you, you were saying Todd is probably going to be a goner, but I felt like you were indifferent on that. But you did predict that Skylar, Walt Jr. and Holly were all going to survive. So your predictions were right on. That ends our series coverage of Breaking Bad. So just you can give your overall thoughts on not just this season, but the series and and the ride you have taken. Are you happy you did it? I'm certainly happy that I finally watched the show. And I'm glad that we've done a podcast about it so that I can record my thoughts for, for all people to hear. This podcast was a great pretext to watch this show. And it is no longer a blemish on my record of pop culture. So... I'm really, really happy that I got to see this and to talk about it with you over the course of these last few months. And I just think that it was, this is absolutely one of the best, one of the best TV shows of all time. I don't know that I'm ever going to have an emotional connection with this show. Like I am a show like Mad Men, which to me is always a show that because I watched it weekly basis for, for a number of years, I think I'm always going to be more emotionally connected to it than I am this one. But this was certainly a, a tremendous experience, and I think season five is the best season of Breaking Bad, and the fact that it is 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 amazing to me because so many other shows, season fives, are either the worst or it tends to be kind of a 
the beginning of a downward spiral for the show in question. But yeah, just uh, tremendous work all around by uh, Vince Gilligan and his crew. And that really is, uh, you know, all I have to say. And I guess Aaron Paul had to kill Todd so that he could become Todd on BoJack Horseman, right? That's how it works? That is exactly how it works. You've nailed it. Yeah, uh, I do think season five is the best season of Breaking Bad. I do think season four is my favorite just because I have such a fondness for Gus as as a villain on this show. I can make a distinction of what I think is the best and what is my favorite, and you're totally right. Uh, I definitely have a more emotional connection because I did watch this weekly for at least the past few seasons, but there are shows, other shows like Lost and Simpsons and stuff I may have more of an emotional connection to, but uh, without a doubt, it's going to be in my top five TV shows ever probably for the rest of my life. It's so good. I'm so glad I was able to rewatch it. It was my plan to rewatch it anyways, to to watch the Breaking Bad movie. And that's going to be our next episode. And it's going to be the only episode of this entire series that we have, Jerome, where you and I are on the same footing because I've yet to, re-wa- to watch El Camino. I wanted to rewatch the show. It had been long enough before I watched it. And well, this podcast was a great opportunity to do it. And now that I've rewatched the show, I'm, I'm excited to watch the movie. And it'll be the one time where you and I are both going into something blind for the course of real bad. Yeah, I think I think this is the first time that it's ever happened in the course of us doing podcasts together because I had seen Veronica Mars season four and you hadn't. But this is this is the first time that we're both going in blind. Neither one of us have seen El Camino. And I think that's going to be really exciting because there's a lot of things to look forward to. I, it's, it's funny because it's like, I'm going to watch El Camino just weeks after finishing season five and you've been waiting for El Camino for like five years. So there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a difference there. And even though El Camino, even though the movie has come out after four seasons of Better Call Saul, we thought it made more sense to just go ahead and review El Camino first and then just go back and review the first five seasons of Better Call Saul, which is what we'll be doing after next month. We will just do five straight seasons of uh, Better Call Saul. That's right. So we will be doing that. And it'll be interesting because I'm going to have some uh, I've seen all of Better Call Saul. So if there's any illusions or character crossovers or anything that aren't in Breaking Bad, I'm going to know them and you aren't. And that's going to be a, a little bit of fun, too. But uh, I was going to make another point there. But oh, uh, what's what was really funny as a podcast note is they mentioned it being the last podcast talking about there. And then someone made a joke about until we come back and make a series of movies. Ha ha ha. Well, little did they know. Just six years later, there would be a Breaking Bad movie coming out, uh, a Netflix exclusive movie. But here we are. When Ke- well, Kevin Ford, when Netflix comes up with a big barrel of money, and I use that word with pun intended, when you just drive up and you bring a big barrel of money, you take it and you do your Breaking Bad movie. Just like the native, the truck may not have been for sale until he saw how much money was being offered for it. Absolutely, that is the case. And I do want to point out, Kevin, that before we go, I do want to point out that there is a scene in a recent episode of Westworld that literally that literally crossed both of our podcast paths. And we had a scene involving Enrico Calatani and Aaron Paul as they interacted on an episode of Westworld. And if Westworld wasn't the worst, I would subject you and make you watch that scene. But I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you that they interacted and there was a scene with Jesse Pinkman and Keith Mars. 
That is truly amazing. It's, that does sound like a scene I would want to watch, but I don't. Your your lack of confidence in selling me on that scene is uh, everything I need to know for advisement as to whether or not to watch it. Just don't. Just don't. It's. I, I'm glad Aaron Paul's getting paid, and he's probably getting paid a lot, but just don't. Well, for anyone who hasn't heard, that's on our Veronica Mars podcast that we did for Enter the Real World where you're listening to this. That is a completed project. You can go back and listen to that. You can also listen to my Lost podcast from Broadcast Depth, which is also a completed project. And my Adventure Time podcast continues. Brand new first-time-ever episodes have started as of episode 61. Episodes 1 through 60 are all the archives. But if you had heard all those and were waiting, all fresh, brand-new episodes have started. You wouldn't have heard them anywhere else because they're debuting here on Enter the Real World for the very first time. And you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. What do you have, Jerome? Uh, you can follow me at Jerome C nineteen eighty five. We have just completed a couple about a month ago the five, the second season of Superhero Pantheon. You can go and listen in the archives to that. We are going to come back with season three, so it is not a completed project because there will always be superhero movies coming out. But we are done with the second season. We are taking a break, especially with the revelation that Matt Waters thinks Avengers: Infinity War is better than Black Panther. It still it still boggles the mind, Kevin. But I've 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 made my peace with it, and I've settled down finally after a month of deceiving. But that's that's something you can go back to, and you can listen to my incredulousness at Matt Waters on that season finale. You can also listen to Brian and I review the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings. You know we are in quarantine because we are going back and not just watching the theatrical versions, but the four hour cuts of all of the Lord of the Rings movies, Kevin. You can go back and listen to those reviews. I was going to make a really crash joke, so I won't. All I will say about all of that is that you didn't just call Matt Waters a racist to move on? Um, I did not think he did it for racist reasons, because Black Panther's in Infinity War 2? Hmm, yeah, okay, yeah, the, we're, we're blurring lines here. I was, uh, I was, of course, being facetious, but uh, it's something I would have done anyways, but logic be darned. But continue, Jerome. I apologize for interrupting. Uh, so yes, and follow me on Twitter at Jerome C1985. If you are a wrestling fan, you can go to 411 Wrestling and listen to Larry Zonka and I talk about Dark Side of the Ring. All of the episodes, I believe you'll be able to find them on 411 Wrestling. So please make sure you go ahead and do that. And this month, the month of July, we are going to be reviewing the Modern Planet of the Apes trilogy, which I am very excited for. And you will be interested, Kevin, because one of J.J. Abrams' top assistants, Matt Reeves, is the director of two of those eight movies. I've actually heard very good things about some of those movies, but I've not seen any of them. So uh, this might be a reasoning for me, again, in quarantine, at least at this time when we're talking about this, to, uh, to give those a watch and listen along. They are shockingly good. Like, I think if you hear about a Planet of the Apes movie, you might think of the Tim Burton sequel. That movie's garbage. These movies are very, very good. And I can see why Matt Reeves got to direct Batman. It is it is also funny to see that two of J.J. Abrams' top assistants, Damon Lindelof and Matt Reeves, have both go, gone on to do way better things than J.J. Abrams. And I'm not being sarcastic, because Rise of Skywalker sucks. God. Yeah, because you know what? He was on Lost for like an episode, so I'll go ahead and I'll agree with that, especially with Lindelof. Uh, but either way, uh, this has been our longest episode, as I think we both expected. How could it not be? But uh, we wanted to give it as as 
we wanted to give the season the justice it deserved. And I, and I hope we did a good enough job covering it for everybody. And we hope that you enjoy listening us talk through all five seasons of Breaking Bad, the television show. We'll be back next month to talk the movie. Jerome, I'm, I'm so happy that you are finally able to check Breaking Bad off of your list, except for this uh, one little movie, which we'll see uh, You know if that technically counts. But for the television series, you can, uh, you can uh, take that proverbial monkey off your back, and I congratulate you for that. Yes, and now we're, you know, Better Call Saul's another big one, and I'm going to be able to check that off very soon as well. And it's going to be weird because I'm going to be watching the final season of Breaking or of Better Call Saul week to week, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. Yeah, you probably won't. But thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back to you next month to discuss El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Hey, Kevin Ford, now that I've seen all of Breaking Bad, I have two words for you. I won. <laughs> <laughs>